you're listening to The Serial Killer. I'm your host, Jeremy Skaggs. This week, well, it was going to work out to have two on one episode, but I found so much information on both of these two ladies from North Carolina that I'm going to split it into two separate episodes. So tonight's episode, episode two, is about the serial killer Velma Barfield, a.k.a. Death Row Granny. Let's get going. Classification, serial killer. Characteristics, poisoner. Number of victims, five to seven. Dates of murders from 1969 to 1978. She was arrested May 13th, 1978. Date of birth, October 23rd, 1932. Victims profile, husbands, fiancés, and her own mother. Method of murder, murder, sorry, poisoning, arsenic. Location, Robeson County, North Carolina, Lumberton, North Carolina, to be more exact. <laughs> Status, executed by lethal injection in North Carolina on November 2nd, 1984. Velma Margie Barfield. Velma Barfield made an international headline when she became the first woman to be executed in America since 1962, the first since the reintroduction of the death penalty in 1976. She was also the first woman to be executed by lethal injection. She was put to death at 2 a.m. on the 2nd of November 1984 at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina. A somewhat plump 52-year-old grandmother who had murdered four people. Velma was addicted to drugs, not the hard drugs like heroin or cocaine, but rather prescription drugs such as tranquilizers, sleeping pills, antidepressants, and barbiturates. Her, her addiction stemmed from a nervous breakdown she had, and she had a history of overdosing and subsequent hospital treatment with four admissions between 1972 and 1975. She was born on October 23rd, 1932 in North Carolina, the oldest girl and second of a large family of nine children. She claimed her father beat and raped her and her sisters, although this was disputed by other, other relatives. She dropped out of school and by 19 had two children, a son, Ron, and a daughter, Kim, by her first husband, Thomas. To begin with, the marriage was happy and they seemed like a normal family unit. All began to deteriorate when Thomas suffered head injuries in a car crash in 1966 and became unable to work. Velma got a job in a store to make ends meet and support the family. Thomas rapidly became an alcoholic and Velma began to take antidepressants and tranquilizers to get her through the daily stress of what had become a miserable life. Ultimately, she had a breakdown and became addicted to various drugs. Thomas died in 1969 in a house fire, which may not have been an accident, and Velma remarried in 1970 to Jennings Barfield, who was dead within six months. The cause? Arsenic poisoning. Her limited employment opportunities could not support her drug habits, so she took to forging checks and then killing the people she had defrauded. After two marriages ended, with the death of her husbands, by 1977, Barfield was in a relationship with Stuart Taylor, who was a widower and a tobacco farmer. As she had been doing for years, she forged checks on Taylor's accounts to pay for her addiction and prescription drugs. Fearing that she had been found out, she mixed an arsenic-based rat poison into his beer and tea. 
Taylor became very ill and Velma volunteered to nurse him. And as his condition worsened, she took him to the hospital where he died a few days later. Unfortunately for her, there was an autopsy which found that the cause of Taylor's death was arsenic poisoning and Velma was arrested and charged with his murder. At the trial, her defense pleaded insanity, but this was not accepted and she was convicted. The jury recommended the death sentence. Velma appeared cold and uncaring at the stand and actually gave the district attorney a round of applause when he made his closing speech. Barfield later confessed to the 1974 murder of her own mother, in whose name she had taken out a loan, and of two elderly people, John Henry Lee, by whom she was being paid as a housekeeper slash caregiver, and Dolly Edwards, a relative of Stuart Taylor. Velma always attended the funerals of her victims and appeared to grieve genuinely for them. The body of her late husband, Thomas Barfield, was later exhumed and also found to contain traces of arsenic. Velma denied that she had killed him. Her motives for these four murders were the same. She had misappropriated money from her victims and then, according to her, tried to make them ill so she could nurse them whilst finding another job to enable her to repay the money. Needless to say, the jury was less than impressed by this defense. Barfield gained notoriety as the death row granny becoming the first woman to be executed in the U.S. in 1962 and the first since the reinstatement of the death penalty in 76. A lot of this information that I have, which all comes from Murderpedia, thank you, Murderpedia, a lot of it kind of, they kind of rehash it again and again throughout this, so you're going to hear some of the same info again and again, but I tried to put it in the best order that I could. Okay, now this next part is going to kind of re, but it gives you a little bit more of what happened here. Thomas Burke began to drink and Barfield's complaints turned into bitter arguments. On April 4th, 1969, after Burke had passed out, Barfield and the children left the house, returning to find the home burned and Burke dead. Only a few months later, her home burned once again, this time with a reward of insurance money. In 1970, Barfield married a widower, Jennings Barfield. Less than a year after their marriage, Jennings died on March 22nd, 71 from heart complications, leaving Velma a widow once again. In 1974, Barfield's mother, Lillian Bullard, showed symptoms of intense diarrhea, vomiting, nausea, and only to fully recover a few days later. During the Christmas season of the same year, Lillian experienced the same illness as earlier that year, resulting in her death only hours after arriving at the hospital on December 30th, 1974. 1976, Barfield began caring for an elderly working elderly working for Montgomery and Dolly Edwards. Montgomery fell ill and died on January 29th, 1977. A little over a month after the death of her husband, Dolly experienced identical symptoms to that of Velma's mother, and she too died March 1st, 1977, a death to which Barfield later confessed. The following year, 1977, Barfield took another caretaking job, this time for 76-year-old Record Lee who had broken her leg on June 4th, 77. Lee's husband, John Henry, began experience racking pains in his stomach and chest along with vomiting and diarrhea. He died soon afterward and Barfield later confessed to his murder. Another victim was Roland 
Stuart Taylor, Barfield's boyfriend and a relative of Dolly Edwards. Fearing he had discovered she had been forging checks on his account. Once again, this is kind of rehashing. She mixed an arsenic-based rat poison into his beer and tea. He died on February 3rd, 78, while she was trying to nurse him, in quotations, back to health. An autopsy found arsenic in Taylor's system. After her arrest, the body of Jennings Barfield was exhumed and found to have traces of arsenic. A murder that denied having committed, although she subsequently confessed to the murders in Lillian of Lillian Bullard, her mom, Dolly Edwards, and John Henry Lee, she was tried and convicted only for the murder of Taylor. Singer-songwriter Jonathan Bird is the grandson of Jennings Barfield, and his first wife, Bird's song Velma, for from his Wildflowers album, gives a personal account of the murders and investigation. Appeals to save her dragged through on through various courts, and there were many representations on her behalf by religious leaders. Her final appeal was filed on October 30th, 1984, in North Carolina Supreme Court on the grounds that she was incompetent at her original trial by virtue of her drug addiction. This was rejected by the court. There had been many appeals on her behalf, the Supreme Court having rejected them on three occasions. The governor of North Carolina, James B. Hunt, declined to grant clemency and was unimpressed by her religious conversion and good behavior on death row. The same argument for commutation was trotted out in the case of Carla Faye Tucker in Texas in 1998. It is claimed by some that Hunt could not reprieve her without looking soft on crime during the run-up to the state elections in 1984. She began to accept her death and instructed her attorney, Jimmy Little, to drop all appeals the day before she was due to be executed, saying that she wanted to die with dignity. She clearly had little fear of what lay ahead and is quoted as saying, when I go into that chamber at 2 a.m., it is my gateway to heaven. Under North Carolina, sorry, I get tongue-tied from time to time. Under North Carolina law, she was allowed the choice of execution by lethal gas or lethal injection, and not surprisingly, she chose the latter. She could not face her last meal and asked a guard to bring her a Coke and cheese doodles. She dressed in her own pink pajamas for the execution and was made to wear a diaper. A stethoscope and heart monitor were taped to her chest. The wheeled gurney was taken to her cell and she was secured to it with straps over her body and legs. Catheters were inserted into her arms and a saline drip started before she was wheeled into the execution chamber a few minutes before 2 a.m. Three syringes were attached to each of the IV lines, and these were operated by three volunteers. One of the IV lines was, in fact, a dummy so that none of the three volunteers could be sure if he had actually killed her or not. She was pronounced dead at 2.15 a.m., the execution having gone without any hitches. At 2.25 a.m., her body was whisked away by a waiting ambulance, passing the crowds of pro- and anti-capital punishment demonstrators who had assembled outside the prison. She had requested that their, that her organs be used for transport transplant purposes. In fact, this was not possible as... Her heart had been not had not been beating for 10 minutes and she could not be could not be restarted, although attempts were made to. 
by the transplant team, her corneas and some skin tissues were able to be used. Now this next section is kind of rehashing again, but giving a little more information into the deaths of her victims and more of her childhood. Born October 23rd, 1932 in Cumberland County, North Carolina, Margie Bullard, who looked back on her childhood as a cruel period of permissible slavery made worse by the attentions of a father who began molesting her at the age of 13. The stories were refuted categorically by seven siblings who denied all charges of abuse in any form by either parent, and it must be granted that Margie's early developmental seemed normal for the given time and place. Dropping out of high school in her junior year, she eloped with Thomas Burke at 17, settling in Paxton, where she bore two children without incident. The trouble started after 15 years of marriage when Burke's luck turned sour almost overnight. Discharged from his job and subsequently injured in a car crash, he began drinking heavily to drown his sorrows, the ever-present liquor, an affront to Margie's fundamentalistic religion. Fundamentalist religion. Sorry, once again, <laughs> marriage became a sort of guerrilla warfare with Margie hiding her husband's whiskey, sometimes pouring it down the sink, finally committing him to Dorothy Dick's hospital in Raleigh as an alcoholic working at a local mill to support the family. She relied on prescription tranquilizers for peace of mind. Thomas came home from the hospital sober and sullen, bitter at his wife's betrayal in 1969 when he when he burned to death in bed, authorities dismissed the death as accidental caused by careless smoking. But later, with the advantage of hindsight, there would be dark suspicions of foul play. In 1971, Margie married Jennings Barfield. His, the he lasted six months. His sudden death ascribed to natural causes, but exhumation and autopsy in 78 would reveal lethal doses of arsenic in his system. By the time she murdered Barfield, Margie was already dependent on prescription drugs, carelessly mixing her pills with the result that she was four times hospitalized for overdose symptoms. In contrast to her addiction, she maintained an active interest in religion, teaching Sunday school at the local Pentecostal church on a regular basis. Short on cash, Margie was writing rubber checks to cover her medical expenses and her several trips to court produced judicial wrist slaps. In 1974, she forged her alleged mother's name to a $1,000 loan application, panicking when she realized the bank might try to contact the real Lily Bullard for verification. Margie eliminated the problem by feeding her mother a lethal dose of insecticide. And then again, the death was attributed to natural causes. Two years later, Margie Barfield was employed by local matron Dolly Edwards as a live-in maid. A fringe benefit of the job was Dolly's nephew, Stuart Taylor, who began dating Margie on the side. But their romance did not stop Barfield from poisoning her employer in February of 77. Her, mo her motive remains unclear. There were no thefts involved, and physicians ascribed the sudden death to acute gastroenteritis. Gastroenteritis. Yes. Okay. We get it. You get it. Margie next moved in with the 80-year-old John Lee and his wife, Record. 
age 76. After forging a $50 check on Lee's account, she sought to make him sick and thereby gain some time to cover the shortage, but her plans obviously went awry. First poisoned in April of 77, John Lee lost 65 pounds before his eventual death on June 4th. After the funeral, Margie began feeding poison to Lee's widow, but she gave up on her job in October 77, leaving a frail survivor behind. Moving on to a Lumberton rest home, Barfield was twice caught forging checks on Stuart Taylor's account. He forgave her each time, but they argued fiercely after the third offense on January 31st, 1978. That night, Margie spiked his beer with poison, keeping up the dosage until Taylor died on February 4th. Relatives rejected the diagnosis of acute gastroenteritis and demanded a full autopsy, resulting in the discovery of arsenic. Under interrogation, Margie confessed to the murders of Taylor, her mother, a second husband, Dolly Edwards, and John Lee. Aside from the motive list Edwards slaying, they were all accidents, bungled attempts to cover up for forgery and theft. A jury deliberated for less than an hour before convicting Barfield of first-degree murder, and she was executed by lethal injection November 2nd, 1984. Death Row 4-1. Like most states, North Carolina had no row for women waiting to be executed. When she was sentenced, Velma Barfield was the only female in the state's doomed by the law. She was housed in Central Prison Section for mental cases, especially assaultive inmates and prisoners considered prone to escape. Early in her prison stay, Velma went through drug withdrawal. She had been supplied with many of her accustomed medications during her trial. Her first days as a condemned prisoner were spent without them, and she showed the classic symptoms of cold turkey, lack of appetite, insomnia, nausea, cold sweats, and splitting headaches. The doctor who treated her gave her antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. Then gradually over a period of a year, she was weaned off of them. To the extent possible, Velma made her cell into a home. She put up photographs of her children and grandchildren along with knickknacks. She crocheted and inspirational religious slogans. Velma did not usually smoke, but she usually had a pack of Salem so that she could light one up while having a bowel movement <laughs> on her cell toilet. Velma, whose victims had usually suffered a horrendous diarrhea before death, did not want to offend her guards with the odor of her own excrement. Velma's radio was usually tuned into a Christian program. Velma claimed that she had become born-again Christian while in jail. Although she had been a churchgoer and professed to love Jesus all her life, Velma said that she recognized that she had never been a true Christian. Her Christianity had been a matter of form and gesture. Then, while at her lowest ebb and waiting trial for her life, she had finally genuinely opened her heart to Jesus and received forgiveness and salvation. She was listening to a sermon by J.K. Kinkle when the message of God's love hit home for the first time. All my life I was weighed down by my sins because I could not do better. She wrote in her autobiography, It never occurred to me that Jesus really did pay the price, that Jesus alone bore the extreme punishment, death, for my sins, not just for my good neighbors. And even more glorious, Jesus is willing to be my friend even now. I can talk to him and he, he will listen. 
Her conversation was greeted with skepticism by many, including the families of her victims. After all, she had spoken of Jesus and salvation when they knew her and when she was poisoning their loved ones. Her Christian faith had always been a fraud, they believed, and it continued to be one. It was just a ploy to try to save her life. And that is the story of Velma Barfield. And we will have an episode three coming out very soon as I do Blanche Taylor Moore, also from North Carolina, also, well, another serial killer. That episode will be up very soon. And, uh, well, we'll talk to you later. I'm Jeremy Skaggs, and I hope you enjoyed The Serial Killer.